Peace be upon you. Let's assume you had to choose between living in one of two communities. The first community does everything you would expect a believing community to do as far as practices go. Uh, they perform their salat five times a day. They give their zakat, uh, their shahadas, la 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 uh, They believe in God. Um, they observe the month of Ramadan. They read the Quran. So everything from a surface level seems that of a believer. But what you realize when you're within the community is that this community is very intolerant to any differences of understanding and that they have a very narrow window of acceptable opinion. And if you ever challenge the group on any of their understandings or interpretations, they become aggressive and hostile. And they have a tendency to insult, bully, criticize, and even banish individuals if they don't side with them on these topics. So that's the first community. The second community, on the other hand, they're not particularly strong in faith. They don't have a particular religion. They don't even agree with you religiously. But they're incredibly nice, cordial, equitable, moral, and tolerant. Uh, despite the fact of not sharing the same belief as you, they're never aggressing and they're always respectful. Which of these two communities would you want to live in? Now, obviously, I say most people are going to want to live in community number two. But why is it that most Muslim countries and Muslim communities fall in the category of community one? That despite the fact that they realize that this creates an oppressive, hostile environment, they consistently make the mistake of creating community number one. Now, in contrast, community number two would be a place like the United States. Despite the fact that most of the people here don't do Salat, they don't observe Ramadan, the fact that they're incredibly tolerant, that they're incredibly uh, kind and cordial, uh, that they respect individuals, makes this a haven for anyone who believes. So why is it that a believing, quote-unquote, believing nation fails in this regard in a country that aren't submitters, they don't follow the Quran, they're more close to a system that God institutes in the Quran? What's going on here? Why is this mistake consistently made among Muslim communities and Muslim nations? Now, the argument I'm going to make is that the mistake these communities are making is that they're applying the principles of the individual to the community and not the principles of the community to the individual. And I'll try to explain. Let's do another thought experiment. As an individual, who has a better probability, according to the verses of the Quran, to make it in the hereafter? Someone who doesn't believe in God, someone who doesn't believe in the hereafter, and let's say they even worship idols, but they're an incredibly nice and caring individual. Compare that to an individual who believes in God, believes in the hereafter, uh, attempts to lead a righteous life, but has some behavioral issues. Now, obviously, in this thought experiment, the second person's probability of making it to paradise is exponentially higher than the first. The only reason I don't say it's absolute because God is the one who determines. But that said, we know that the criteria of the first person does not correspond with that of the criteria that's required to make it into paradise according to the verses of the Quran. So what's going on is that when we apply principles of the individual to that of the community, we're going to have a disconnect. And I'm going to try to explain. As an individual, our number one priority is to have the right belief. Before we can address action, if our belief is wrong, all our actions would be nullified. But it's the reverse for a community. For a community, it is more important that they advocate 
proper behavior rather than proper belief. Now, both are important, but from a community standpoint, if you are only concerned with the belief of the individuals and make their actions, their behavior secondary, what ends up happening is that you create a system that is more concerned with the belief, what goes on in someone's head, than their actual actions. And that's the reason that you see a lot of these believing communities end up becoming so oppressive is because they're more fixated on the belief and not enough on the actions. When you look at a place like the United States, they're more interested in the actions of an individual. Are they being oppressive? Are they being hostile? Are they being aggressive? Are they corrupt? Then they are about the belief of the individual. What's their religion? Who's their God? What is it? How do they worship? These become secondary. And it's been like this since the founding of this nation. So individuals, when we're in a community, we should be less concerned with the belief of the other individuals in that community and more concerned that the other individuals in that community are behaving in a manner that's respectful, that's tolerant, that's kind, that's equitable. When we reverse these priorities and become fixated with what people believe in a community and become less concerned about their actions towards other members of that community, then you have a recipe that's going to create an inhospitable, aggressive community. Therefore, this shows that in the case of an individual, belief is more important than behavior, since without the proper belief, there's no hope for them in the hereafter. But in the case of a community, from the thought experiment we did, we see that the behavior of that community is more important than the individual member's belief. This is because without the community possessing the right behavior, an individual cannot be free to believe and worship how they deem best according to their own understanding. This explains the reason to why so many Muslim nations and communities fall into this trap of becoming some of the most intolerant places in the world. These groups are applying the criteria of the individual to the community. It's true, as an individual, we must be zealots to make sure we maintain correct belief, foremost, and then, in conjunction, work on our behavior. But for a community, the priorities should be reversed. In a community, people need to be complete zealots to make sure that the behavior of the people of that community is first addressed before considering the belief of its members. In a community... Bullying, aggression, mocking, ridiculing, someone because of their belief should never be tolerated. But what you see in these communities, these quote-unquote you know, Muslim nations, believing communities, is that they side with the individual that shares their belief, irrespective of their actions. That they put the belief above the actions. That if someone is quote-unquote a believer and they're behaving in such way, that they say that's okay as long as those actions were so towards someone who had a difference of belief. And this creates an oppressive society. Now, typically, there's uh, two arguments that come up to this, uh, to this claim that in a community, it's more important to focus on behavior than it is belief and vice versa uh, for the individual. The first argument is that they say that this opens the door to tolerating sin in a community and this is going to corrupt the community. This argument makes the claim that by focusing on the behavior primarily and the belief secondary, that you're actually opening the door and becoming tolerant to sinful behavior. 
And the typical verse that's used to, for this argument is Surah 8 verse 25 where it reads, Beware of a retribution that may not be limited to the evildoers among you. You should know that God's retribution is severe. The understanding from this verse is that the society that tolerates sinful behavior, like that of homosexuality, may be hit with a retribution, something like an earthquake. So therefore, despite not all the members partaking in the sin, their apathy towards the sinful behavior leads to a retribution that the entire community will suffer from. Now, is this a correct claim? That by simply allowing people to commit sin, that it means that that community is tolerant of sin. Now, the grossest sin, according to the Quran, is that of idol worship. Does that mean that unless a believing nation prohibits the worshiping of idols, limits what religions individuals can partake in, that these individuals otherwise would be responsible for tolerating idol worship? Now, it's obvious that as a submitting nation, we should never limit people's ability to worship however they deem fit, be it idol worship or disbelief or to be a believer. In Surah 2256, it reads, There shall be no compulsion in religion. The right way is now distinct from the wrong way. Anyone who denounces the devil and believes in God has grasped the strongest bond, one that never breaks. God is here omniscient. So we can never, in a believing community, go and restrict other people from being able to worship whatever they want to worship, however they want to worship. So this shows that as an individual, allowing someone else to commit sin does not mean that you're tolerant of the sin. Because you could be 100% against something yourself, but merely allowing someone else to partake in that, that's their own prerogative. So this is a false claim to say that by allowing people these freedoms, that it shows that you're tolerating sin. You know, God goes so far in the Quran in Surah 6 verse 108 to tell us not to curse the idols of the disbelievers. It reads, Do not curse the idols they set up beside God, lest they blaspheme and curse God out of ignorance. We have adorned the works of every group in their eyes. Ultimately, they return to their Lord. Then he informs them of everything they had done. That as a believer, not only do we allow people to, to sin, God is telling us, don't curse what it is they do because they might turn around and blaspheme against God. So by allowing people to worship freely, even if it's idol worship, by no means does this mean that we're tolerating idol worship. You know, individuals can be 100% against something for themselves, but this does not mean that they have to prohibit others from the action in order to prove that they do not tolerate the action. The rule here is that we should never, under any circumstances, condone sin. People in a submitted community should be free to sin as long as they do not infringe on the rights of others. But it is the responsibility of the submitters in that community to never back down from calling the behavior what it is. So if someone chooses to sin, we can never sugarcoat it. We can never say, oh, that's okay. No, we call it what it is. It's idol worship. It's sinful behavior. But this doesn't mean that we have to go and refrain them from being able to do such actions. If we did that, then we'd be having compulsion in religion, and God is telling us that that's prohibited. So this is important to emphasize, that as a believing nation, it doesn't mean they tolerate idol worship because they allow someone to partake in the act. The tolerance happens on the individual level. 
And if we ever get to a point where we start making excuses for sinful behavior, we say, oh, you know, abortion, it's okay, it's not a big deal, homosexuality, yeah, it's okay, and we don't stand with God, then we become tolerant of sin. We have to call it for what it is, but it doesn't mean that you're going to go out of your way to fight these people because they have a difference of understanding than you. I believe this is perfectly encompassed in the following verses, Surah 4, verse 107 through 111. It reads, Do not argue on behalf of those who have wronged their own souls. God does not love any betrayer guilty. They hide from the people and do not care to hide from God. Though he is with them as they harbor ideas he dislikes, God is fully aware of everything they do. God is informing us in this verse that if we're arguing on behalf of those who have wronged their souls, and I understand this to mean that these are individuals who've committed sin that we do not, again, sugarcoat what it is that they've done. We address that, yes, it's sinful behavior, we don't stand for it, but it doesn't mean that you have to go and force them to refrain them from committing that act, as long as, again, they're not hurting anyone else. Now, what's interesting is individuals, they take this verse and they say, oh, we're not supposed to defend the transgressors, as if these individuals aren't allowed to have uh, fair representation, be it in a court of law, or to be treated equitably. Everyone has that right. And it continues in 4109, says, Here you are arguing on their behalf in this world. Who is going to argue with God on their behalf on the day of resurrection? Who is going to be their advocate? This verse, again, it's, it's informing us that we never condone sin. We never glaze over it, make justifications for it, make excuses for it. But what's interesting is some people, they take this and they justify it as that, oh, um, where it says, here you are arguing on their behalf, who's going to argue uh, with God on their behalf on the day of resurrection, that this means we shouldn't argue on their behalf, that again, that they shouldn't be treated with respect, that they shouldn't be treated equitably. And that's not what the verse is saying, because that would create numerous contradictions. You know, some individuals, they understand this verse to mean that we should not defend or be nice to anyone who is a transgressor. But I think it's a gross misrepresentation of what the verse is actually stating. You know, such extreme interpretations would imply that someone who is a transgressor should not have any representation in, say, a court of law, and that they should not be dealt with in an equitable manner. Such understanding goes against numerous verses of the Quran that command the believers to always be equitable in our dealings. And everyone has basic rights that must be upheld irrespective of what transgression they committed or what beliefs they have. In Surah 5 verse 8 it reads, O you who believe, you shall be absolutely equitable and observe God when you serve as witnesses. Do not be provoked by your conflicts with some people into committing injustice. You shall be absolutely equitable, for it is more righteous. You shall observe God. God is fully cognizant of everything you do. These verses are informing the believers to not argue in defense of transgressions of the transgressors. And if a believer attempts to do so, they're not helping the individual, but only hurting their souls because they will be confounding the truth with falsehood. As believers, we should never sugarcoat sin. If we do so, it will not help anyone. It will only be to the detriment of our souls. The other two verses that individuals will resort in order to justify their intolerance in a society are the following. In Surah 48 verse 29, it says, Muhammad and the Messenger of God and those with him are harsh and stern against the disbelievers, but kind and compassionate amongst themselves. So individuals, they take this verse and they say, look, we have to be harsh and stern when we're dealing with the disbelievers. 
The other verses in Surah 58 verse 22, it reads, you will not find people who believe in God and the last day befriending those who oppose God and his messenger. And again, they take these two verses and they apply it towards anyone who they deem as a disbeliever or an enemy of God or someone who opposes God. You know, the Quran is very clear who we are not allowed to befriend. And consistently, it's only individuals that are aggressive and wish us harm. In Surah 60 verse 8 and 9, it gives us the basic laws on who we are allowed and not allowed to befriend. It reads, God does not enjoin you from befriending those who do not fight you because of religion, do not evict you from your homes. You may befriend them and be equitable towards them. God loves the equitable. God enjoins you only from befriending those who fight you because of religion, evict you from your homes, and band together with others to banish you. You shall not befriend them. Those who befriend them are the transgressors. So this verse is informing us that the only individuals that we are prohibited from befriending are those who fight us because of our religion, evict us from our homes, or band together with others to banish us. That if someone isn't being aggressive towards us, they're not fighting us because of religion, we have no right to say that, oh, you cannot befriend that individual. In Surah 3 verse 118, it says, oh, you believe, do not befriend outsiders who never cease to wish you harm. They even wish to see you suffer. Hatred flows out of their mouths and what they hide in their chest is far worse. We thus clarify the revelations for you if you understand. Individuals who want us to see us uh, suffer, who want to inflict harm upon us, who are aggressive towards us. These are the only individuals we are not allowed to befriend. To say that Surahs uh, 4829 regarding Muhammad, how he dealt with the disbelievers, and Surah 58 verse 22 about uh, don't befriend those who oppose God and his messenger, apply to every single individual who doesn't believe exactly like uh, we do, is using these verses in too broad of a brush. Because again, with that such an interpretation, it creates contradictions in other verses. What else is interesting is this further reinforces that as a community, we should be more concerned with behavior than we are with belief. If someone's a disbeliever, but they're being kind, they're being cordial, they're being equitable, we cannot turn back and be mean and nasty. We have to treat them equitably. And God tells us in the Quran that aggression is only permitted against the aggressors. That the most we're ever allowed to aggress against someone is equitable to however much they aggress towards us. But God, even in such circumstances, commands that it's better if we resort to patience, that we treat them with benign neglect, that we ignore them and only utter peace. Now, the other verse that's used to justify hostility and aggression towards individuals who have a difference of uh, belief is in Surah 60, verse 4. And it reads, A good example has been set for you by Abraham and those with him. They said to their people, We disown you and the idols that you worship beside God. We denounce you and you will see nothing from us except animosity and hatred until you believe in God alone. People, they take this verse and they say, Look, this is Abraham aggressing against other individuals because of their belief. Now, what's obvious is if we were to apply that understanding, we would be implying that Abraham was an aggressor. Now, we know from the history of Abraham that his people were incredibly aggressive towards him to the point that they captured him and tried to throw him into a fire uh, to burn him alive. These are not just individuals who have a difference of understanding. Now, when we look at the Arabic, we realize that what it's insinuating this verse is that the animosity and hatred was not one directional. It was not from Abraham to them, but it was uh, bi-directional. 
When we look at the Arabic, we see that it says Wabada, which translates to and it has appeared, Bainana, between us, Wabainakum, between you all, Al Adawatu, which translates to the animosity, Wal Baghda'u, which would translate to hatred. So it's clear that the hatred and animosity is not one directional, it's not from Abraham towards the disbelievers, but it's mutual, that it's between both parties. So consistently, we're seeing the only individuals we are allowed to be harsh and stern and uh, uh, aggressive towards are those who are harsh and stern and aggressive towards us. That if someone's a disbeliever, uh, they don't share the same faith, they're idol worshippers, whatever. If they're nice, they're cordial, they're equitable, we have to treat them in the same manner. We have to actually treat them better because as believers, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. So the second argument that you hear people make is that if we are to tolerate people with sinful beliefs in a community, it's going to lead to the deterioration of religion. You know, the second reasoning to why communities feel justified to prioritize belief over behavior is that the fear that if they don't, then it will allow all kinds of innovations and sin to pour into the religion, corrupting the religion from within. Thus, people feel obligated that they have to safeguard such an assault by policing people's thoughts and beliefs. Ironically, such ideology actually has the reverse outcome propagating the very thing that these communities are attempting to prevent. A society that has a culture that ostracizes or imposes hardships on individuals who speak out inevitably creates a society that's oppressive. The only way everyone in a community will believe the exact same on every matter and topic occurs by only one of two methods. Either the members of that community are outsourcing their understanding of such matters to a few on the top, thus forming a hierarchy in the religion, or it's done by force, which goes against the teachings of the Quran. If you want to have everyone believe the same, if you utilize force, then again, you created a oppressive community. In Surah 10 verse 99 says, had your Lord willed all the people on earth would have believed, do you want to force the people to become believers? We can never resort to force, to aggression, uh, to these extreme measures in order to get people to get in line with belief. You know, and then in the flip side, a community that centralizes their understanding is more likely to be sent astray than one where each individual thinks independently. This is because it's harder to corrupt an ideology when it is collectively shared by many in a decentralized manner than when it's centralized and dictated from the top down by leaders to their followers. The reason is because when an ideology is decentralized, in order for the ideology to become corrupted, each free-thinking practitioner of that ideology in that community would need to individually be sent astray. Alternatively, if it's centralized in a hierarchy, all Satan needs to do is corrupt those individuals on the top that everyone is following and the entire system collapses. Take the example of the mullahs in Iran or the Pope or the Muslim ulama. These individuals have sent billions of people astray by giving false interpretations that deceive so many countless individuals. The reason is because these followers, they outsource their critical thinking to these leaders. And in such a hierarchical structure, Satan's job becomes drastically easier, as all he needs to do to send an entire community astray is by focusing all his efforts towards these few leaders that everyone is looking up to. And once those dominoes fall, the whole religion comes crashing down with it. So by keeping things decentralized, having individuals think critically for themselves, despite the 
possibility of differences of understanding, the safeguarding of the integrity of the religion becomes a lot more likely because the likeliness of every single individual coming up with a wrong understanding unanimously, it, it goes to virtually zero. And again, this only happens in one of two circumstances. Either the individuals on the top, the ones with power, force the community to believe a certain way, and then that sends everyone astray. Or um, individuals are, again, outsourcing their critical thinking to these leaders on the top, and then they have a wrong understanding, and it propagates to the entire congregation, the entire community. Either way, we're better off allowing people to think critically, to be able to question the status quo, and not be oppressed for their beliefs. So what's the conclusion of all this? So when we're prioritizing which is more important, either belief or behavior, it's crucial to assess the lens by which we are evaluating. While for an individual, it's more important that they have the right belief, the same is not true for a community. As for a community, it's important that the members of that community encourage each other to behave in a manner that's equitable, that's kind, that's compassionate and tolerant, rather than being overtly concerned about any individual's personal belief. By following such guidelines, it will help safeguard God's religion to foster an environment that reduces the devil's influence and creates a society that is more in line with God's teachings in the Quran. So God willing, in our communities, Let's be zealots to make sure that the behavior is upheld, that people are treating each other cordially, that people are treating each other with uh, respect, uh, equitably. That if we do that, that we trust in God's system, that those who deserve to be guided will be guided. That there's nothing we can do to change that. God willing, just going to end with one last verse. This is Surah 28, verse 56. It reads, You cannot guide the ones you love. God is the only one who guides in accordance with His will and in accordance with his knowledge of those who deserve the guidance. We have to make sure that as individuals, we are doing our utmost to uphold the laws of God. And as a community, we have to do our utmost to make sure that the community standards abide by what God commands us in the Quran, that we do not become oppressors and aggressors towards other members, that we treat people with respect, that we're equitable, and we know that God is the one who ultimately guides the individuals. To think that we are going to do God's work by eliminating individuals and banishing them from the community because they have a difference of understanding or a difference of belief is actually breaking the very commandments of God in the Quran. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at QuranTalk at gmail.com. If you guys want an awesome translation of the Quran uh, word by word from the Arabic, uh, go to the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store. Uh, it looks just like the logo for a podcast. And we also have the website, uh, QuranStudyApp.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.